What's up, everybody? It's Rafael Garcia back for episode 123, I believe is the right number. This is the MMA Ratings Podcast. I am Rafael Usual with my partner in crime, Sean Hughes. How you doing there, sir? Let everybody know how you are. I'm not doing too bad, man. Busy as always. Got a few potential uh, clients coming up to help them scout for their uh, fights for some opponents. So a lot of people from Twitter have been recommending me to people they know who fight, and they're sending them over to me to kind of see if I can help them out. That's pretty cool, actually. Anybody even know? No. It's some up-and-coming fighters and some people who are just... Uh, one of the competing in the Invicta tournament was supposed to... I helped her out, but she didn't make way for the for the tournament, so she... Okay, well, um, you're already breaking up a little bit, Schwan, so get somewhere where it's a little bit better for me. Uh, so let's yeah. go ahead and kind of start talking about this week. We, I, you know, as I was putting together today's um, agenda, as you know, last night, I looked at everything that's kind of going on around in MMA, and I was like, well, there's two stories I kind of want to talk about really quickly before we hop into UFC 238 and this link. The stories are linked because both um, Alexander Gustafsson and uh, Jimmy Manawab retired after their losses on Saturday in UFC Stockholm, where Alexander uh, retired after being submitted in the second round, I believe. He retired in the octagon. And Manawa was knocked out by um, Rackets, is his last name. Can't think of his first name right now. He was knocked out in the, I think, the first round of their fight. Of, and we saw two guys kind of get pushed out of the light heavyweight division. Um, did it surprise you that both men retired at, at, at the same time on Saturday, or was it something you were kind of expecting? Uh, it didn't surprise me. It surprised me that they both did it at the same time. What It actually made me happy. I really thought Manoa, he'd been getting knocked out, and when he got knocked out, he gets knocked out so badly. I really thought he should he could have retired a fight or two ago. And with Gustafsson, um, he'd already gotten his, his – he'd had three title shots. He hadn't won any of them. He pretty much is gone as far as he's going to go. He's beaten all the people he can beat, and I personally thought the game had kind of passed him by, and that he was he was on the decline, and that he needed to get out. After that, if he didn't win the Jones fight, I thought he should have retired after the Jones fight, to be honest. And so after the second Jones fight, you think he should have retired. What do you think of Gustafsson's legacy? I actually just wrote a piece about him uh, today talking about that, and I compared him to uh like a Patrick Ewing, Allen Iverson, or a King Griffey Jr. in um other professional sports where we've seen guys who were great, but there was someone greater who just stopped them from getting to the belt. Can we look at Gustafson the same way or is that giving him too much or not enough credit? You know who I would compare Gustafson to? Like Jim Kelly or the Buffalo Bills. He was good enough to get to the title multiple times. He was good enough to get close to being competitive fights but he was never good enough to win win the big fight, no matter how many times he got to it, no, ma- no matter who he faced when he got to it. He's going to be remembered. He was the first guy from his country to be a, a really big star, to kind of be like a breakout star and have some kind of international cachet and worldwide fame as an MMA fighter. Um, at this stage, he'd probably be the best fighter from his country because he was able to compete with the elite guys and only lose by points. The But the, as far as the American mixed martial arts fan, he's probably going to be looked at as the guy who was the bridesmaid and never a bride. Kind of like uh, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone looked at in the NBA. He's a guy who could have been a champion if he wasn't born in the generation 
of a Daniel Cormier and a John Jones. In an earlier incantation of the light heavyweight division, he probably wins. But when those two guys came around and established themselves, his chance of being the man at that weight class essentially disappeared. So his position, his opportunity there basically disappeared. Do you think that the fans will remember him that way? How will the fans remember him? Or is that more of a question that's based on where you see him? Like, will Swedish fans look at him differently than fans from another country? Well, Swedish fans will look at him differently because he's from their country. He represents them. And he's he's like their guy. You know, it's like, I mean, it's like, I hate to compare, but like the Floyd Mayweather, black people look at Floyd Mayweather differently than they might look at a Canelo Alvarez because Floyd's one of us. So you might rock for him a little bit harder, just like Mexicans would rock for Canelo because Canelo's one of them. His country is always going to see him as a legend, a national hero, because once again, he he kind of brought them to the forefront and he was an international star. They could actually say we had one of the top two fighters in a division or one of the top two fighters in the world in our, who's from our country. He worked his way all the way up. The thing that's really going to hurt his image on a certain level is going to be the w- way he got the second Jones fight. He essentially like said he was injured or wouldn't. He didn't fight for like two years and he walked into a title fight and then he lost. Now, if you play the game and you get a title fight and you win, like Tyron Woodley did, nobody can say anything to you because you won and you have the belt. But in the case of Gustafsson, he didn't win the title. And he had turned down fights and avoided fights, and he basically just politicked his way into a title shot. And that that rubbed a lot of American fans wrong. That rubbed a lot of worldwide fans the wrong way. And I think that's going to influence how people perceive him and how people look at him moving forward. Where would you put him in in your rankings of uh, all-time lightweights? Uh, Since he never won the title, he can't. He'd probably have to be uh, four, maybe five. Yeah, I, I wouldn't put him above Randy Couture. I wouldn't put him above Chuck Liddell. I wouldn't put him above, obviously, Jones or Cormier. So, what's that? He's probably top five light heavyweights of all time. If all things were equal, I think those guys beat him, and they all got the job done. So I can't ever really just put him on the level of the guys who actually won the belt. I just can't put him above them. But yeah, I'd say I'd say he's top top five light heavyweight of all time. Okay, straighten out your sound again because it was just doing great. Uh, it's choppy again, but uh, top five of all time. I am. Hmm, that's pretty. That's pretty interesting because you. Who? Let me see. Light heavyweights right now. Um. Obviously, you have. You have John Jones. You have uh, Daniel Cormier. What about Ryan Bader? Would you put Ryan Bader ahead of him or behind him? I can't put him above. I can't put Ryan Bader above him because Ryan Bader never even got to a title shot in the UFC. At this stage, I guess you could say overall, but Bader got his title against lesser opposition. I'm not trying to bash the Bellator guys, but Daniel Cormier and John Jones would be champions in Bellator too. But Bader was not able to get a title in the UFC. He wasn't even able to get to a title shot. Every time he was about to get to it, he lost. He lost to Jones when he had a chance to get to a title shot. He lost to Anthony Johnson when he had a chance to get to a title shot. So he was never even able to get to the position to compete for the belt. So I can't put him above Gustafsson overall. So And, and that, that that's how I look at it. I guess overall you could say Bader wants bigger and better, but I don't know that if Gustafsson went to Bellator that he wouldn't have won the light heavyweight title either. 
Let me ask you this. Does Bader's two wins over Phil Davis, though, a man who Alexander Gustafson never beat, come into that, uh, come into this conversation? I can Phil see Davis that logic. submitted, uh, he, he submitted um, Gustafson. I can, I can see that logic, but then you could also, even though Gustafson lost against Jones, he was more competitive against Jones in either one of his fights than, than Bader was. Not, Bader the, got, not, not, not the second one. Didn't Bader get finished in the first round against Jones? Um, that may be true. Go ahead. I think that I think that sounds right. You know, he he got he got finished in the first round. The third, even when he fought the wrong game plan, and Gustafson, like I said, he went life and death with Cormier. He went life and death with Jones, and I, I can see the argument that Bader once again has improved and gone on to bigger and better things. But as I said, he couldn't even get to a title shot in the UFC. He could not, and and that. That means something to me. I'm not saying it means he's the worst, but it's hard for me to put him over a guy who got to do three title shots. However he got to him, he got to three. Bader hadn't even gotten to one. And every time he had a chance, he had a winnable fight, and he lost it. He lost to John Jones before John Jones was John Jones, and he lost to Anthony Johnson. And that was when he was on the cusp of a title fight. So I, I, can't, I can't put him over somebody who actually <laughs> got twice. So what about um, Jimmy Manuel? Where do we want to put him in this conversation? Because he also retired after a stunning loss. I don't know if you can even put him in top 10. He's just so hit or miss. And at, at the stage he's in, when he came to the light heavyweight division, it became even more of the wild, wild west. It was so uneven. And the way he's lost and the guys he's lost to, they're not always superstars. They're not super established guys. So athletic talent-wise, he's probably top five, top 10 as far as an athletic talent. As far as what he put in the cage and who he beat, Manuel is like, you know, maybe a top, he's probably like out of the top 10, top 15 or something or something of that nature. He just, the way he lost, his punch resistance is what takes him out of the field for me. He was, he was able ever to take punishment. And because of that, he lost the guys he shouldn't have necessarily lost to. But he, he given how late he started in it and how, how much work had to be done to get him to compete, I give him a tremendous amount of credit for doing what he did. It's clear he was a great athletic talent because he didn't have years of combat sports and years of training to help give him seasoning and get his timing down and develop his skill set. He was getting by on heart, aggression, and athleticism. And he did the most he could with his athletic skill set. He was like a lesser OSP, basically, a guy with less skills, less experience, but comfortable athletic ability, and that's what carried him. So I never thought he was the greatest fighter in the world, but he was always dangerous because of his athletic ability. Okay, all right. So... Uh, I'm not, I don't want to talk too much about Anthony Smith because we've kind of covered him. Um, but I do want to talk about the guy who knocked out uh, Jimmy Manuel. Let me pull up his name real quick because I do not want to give you two seconds. To let's see, let's see. Alex, Alexander Rakic. Uh, let's just call him Alex, Alex for now. So we don't, we both don't butcher that guy's name. He won this fight in 47 seconds. Uh, he this was his fourth UFC um, fight, his second finish. He went to two decisions initially, twelve and one as a fighter. Uh, John, not excuse me, Luke Thomas was talking a lot about this guy heading into the week, and he said that this is going to be a moment that we may all remember. And that's exactly what we got. Head kick KO, forty-seven seconds in. What are, what are you aware of when it comes to um, this new light heavyweight? Well, I said last week, he's got a good skill set. He's got decent, basic athletic skills. The thing I thought Manu would bring was experience, but I didn't, 
I didn't compensate for how fragile Jimmy is at this stage as far as his, his ability to take punishment. And that's why I'm not as high off that win as other people are. Yeah, it was a great knockout. Yeah, it was a great setup. It's great execution. But you knocked out Jimmy Manawa. And at this stage, it's who hasn't knocked out Jimmy Manawa. As impressive as that is, if Manawa has a better chin, is the fight over? If he hit John Jones with that kick, does that knock Jones out? Maybe not. Does it knock Cormier out from what we know? Probably not. But it knocked Manawa out. And Manawa has been susceptible to being knocked out. So I didn't get to really see how much of that guy's IQ exists, how much defensive skill he has, how much counter skill he has, how much creativity he has. He's fighting a guy who is not the most technical fighter, still not the most experienced fighter, and a fighter who is excessively fragile, can't take punishment really at all. So he had a spectacular knockout. Isn't that what you expect against a guy who can hit but can't take punishment? Like, what, what would lead? You know what I'm saying? Like, how impressive is it that you knocked out a guy who can't take a shot? I think it's. I think this this is impressive because he was put in this position to excel, and he did just that. I, I think that he did so in a way that will get him looked at the same way, close to the same way that um, Johnny Walker is looked at right now, Dominic Reyes, the way those guys are kind of looked at in this division. Is he someone that should be immediately inserted into conversations as as contender status? No. I think he'll pop up in the top 15 rankings. Let me check and see if he already has popped up in that up. Uh, let's see, 205 pounds. John Jones is the champion. Yep, he moved in as number 11. So actually, he's actually ahead of Johnny Walker, which I find interesting. So uh, let's see what this guy looks like and how he looks like um, in his next timeout. But I, I definitely think he did enough to create some intrigue around what's next for him. Well, the thing about it is he's the people are excited about him because he's young and there's a lot of old people. And the biggest thing is we always have these young guys who put a couple wins together. Then they get fed to the veterans and they get destroyed. So people like seeing young, athletic, light heavyweights come in because he, it gives the image that the light heavyweight division is deep and there's all these options and you don't know where everything's going. And, and John Jones is under duress. He might be in danger of losing his title. When in fact, that even though they got a lot of young guys, none of them have really separated themselves or established themselves as world-class. That, that win over Manawa, great, spectacular. He did what he's supposed to do. But they, they made that fight hoping that he would knock Manawa out and establish himself as a potential star. Johnny Walker... Hasn't he hasn't shown anything? He's I mean he's not guys out, but we we don't know how he is if he has to fight six minutes. We only know how he is when he fights two or three. We don't know how he is in the second round. We don't know how he is in the third. So it, there's a lot of questions. We see the potential, but we haven't seen enough of the test to really know what these guys can do when they're not given given favorable matchups. And even though I picked Manawa over over this guy, Manawa was a favorable matchup. Anytime you face a guy who can't take a punch you're in a favorable matchup. I don't care how, how big the gap is in skills. If that person can barely take any punishment, you are in a favorable matchup. And at this stage, Manawa just can't take punishment anymore. Okay, I'm not bad. At, I'm not mad at, at, at that breakdown there. All in all, what did you think of UFC Stockholm? I thought it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty good card. It was much better than I thought it, thought it would be from top to bottom. It was some good action across the card. What did you uh, think? What did you take away? Uh, it was a good card. I, I want to do take a real quick moment to talk about uh, the loss Tanya Evinger suffered. A lot of people thought this was a favorable matchup for her because she's a grappler and uh, Lena Landsberg is a striker. As always, our show differed. And the fact of the matter is 
Tanya Everson gets by on aggression, physicality, and durability. I don't know what happened, but sometime from Invicta to the UFC, her ability to be phys- to physically dominate and her ability to take punishment has fallen off a cliff. That's two losses back-to-back where she was physically manhandled, outgrappled, and just literally beaten up. I don't know that she stays in the UFC that much longer. I know the division is super thin, but she can't even get to her strength anymore. She's essentially getting out-wrestled by non-wrestlers, getting dominated by the wrestlers, and she can't take a shot anymore. I don't know what they do with her at this stage because her name doesn't carry any cachet because she doesn't have any wins in the UFC. She just has a bunch of losses and dynamic losses too. So um, I'm really shocked. I'm really shocked by this turn of events. I expected some slippage when she came in because she came in older, but I didn't expect her to, to crash and burn like this. And it, it's been pretty bad in her UFC run. See, the thing is, I, I agree with you. I think she is also on her way out of the UFC. I, she, I feel like she was brought in last minute to face off against um, Cyborg, but I do believe that the UFC never had any intention on bringing her in. And she's talked about this um, openly in the past, and uh, uh, it's unfortunate to see her, um, s- I don't want to say suffer, but struggle in these ways in, in recent time, but uh, she is someone who has had a strong career. She put together quite an interesting run, but she's when... Another, say it again? She's another person who, by the time they got to the UFC, they were already in decline, so they didn't have anything to show. Kind of like Gomi came in. By the time we got yeah. to the UFC, didn't have anything left. I, I was going to compare her to Gomi and also um, Shayna Baszler. Uh, another, another individual who fights the straw the one who used to be a straw weight who fought in the world series of fighting she was like considered one of the best Jessica fighters. Aguilar. yeah those three people by the time they got here they they weren't athletically able to compete and their skill sets they don't have deep enough skill sets to balance out the fact that they don't have the athleticism tanya evanger can't strike she really can't if she can't scare you with the wrestling she can't strike so if she can't get to the ground what does she do yeah, yeah, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely agree with you there that it, um, it's she got there, she got there too late, um, and you know we, we see that unfortunately that will I don't want to say tarnish her legacy, but it will, it will people will not recognize her for being the standout women's fighter that she was throughout much of her, her career. I just want to say one more thing. Shout out to Carla Esparza because Carla Esparza has a lot in common with Baszler. Aguilar and um, Avenger, and that she was mostly a wrestler and a grappler. But if you notice, her team and Carla developed enough of an all-round skill set, so even when she can't dominate with wrestling, she can still compete. And that's why she's still beating world-ranked fighters and Avenger and Baszler and Aguilar getting crushed by every fringe world-class fighter they face. So props to Carla Esparza for that development. Props to her team. They did an excellent job on her. Very true there. Um, let's see. Let's move on. I want to spend most of the show talking about UFC 238, which is the big kind of, which is a big showcase this weekend. I look at the card again. Um, there's a lot to talk about on this fight. There's four important women's fights. There's bantamweight fights up and down this card. So they did everything that they needed to to book a very strong card here. Top. We have Henry Cejudo and fighting for the vacated bantamweight title. I am very interested in this fight and I have a couple of different reasons why because A, I am actually going to write a piece about this, but I think Cejudo, he should have never been considered in this conversation. Yes, I know he did get that stoppage stoppage win over um, TJ, but there's way too many bantamweights that, that could have been slotted here and he has two contenders in uh, Formiga and uh, 
beefcake, uh, Justin Benavidez, that are chomping at the bit, ready to fight for that flyweight title. So if UFC is going to keep that title around, he needs to defend it. And he never really got that, in my opinion, that, that victory over DJ was questionable. I'm not going to argue it. I think it was, I understand the, the, the decision. But I have a lot of uh, reasons why Hiro Shihiro should not be in this fight. But it is what it is. It's our main event. He's looking to become a double champion. And the fighters moving up in weight class have always performed better in this in this situation. So what are your thoughts about Hiro Shihiro versus Marlon Morales? Well, I understand why they made the fight. Suhudu had a questionable win over Mighty Mouse, but be, being the first guy to, to defeat him put Suhudo to the front of the news media for MMA. Then he has the fight with TJ and the big buildup for that because TJ is going to go try to be a double champ. He beats TJ easily, which puts him back in the front of the news after, after that. And then TJ pops for the drugs, which once again indirectly puts Henry Suhudo at the front of the MMA media. So right now there's very few fighters who aren't named Conor McGregor or even Ronda Rousey still or somebody of that nature who have a bigger name and have been given more of a platform than Henry Cejudo. And while he hasn't earned a Bantamweight title shot, he has earned the right to maybe call his shot because whether you agree with this fight or not, he beat Demetrius Johnson, whether you think he did or not, the judges said he did. That's a huge win. And then he beat TJ Dillashaw, whether it was stopped early or not, the ref made a decision. That's two wins over guys who are arguably the best in their weight divisions of all time. Two back-to-back fights, big fights on big platforms, and he won them both. So I get why they're pushing him forward. He's got a story. It's interesting. He's a former world champion. He's not particularly charismatic, but he likes the camera, and he's always going to take every opportunity he can to get in front of it. And the UFC needs guys like that to help expand their brand and help help them make more money. They're already guaranteed a certain amount by ESPN. His pre- if they have more guys who are willing to do the work they can add on to that. And that's what the bottom line is. The fights that will draw eyes, the fights that will draw attention. So he didn't earn this, but I get why that's happening. And I, I don't really, I can't fault him for it. I'd take the opportunity if I had it too. Um, as far as the fight, <clears throat> the biggest strength I feel Henry Cejudo has is his team. His team has done a really masterful job in refining him and developing him and diversifying his skill set. At one point, Henry Cejudo was a guy who couldn't put wrestling and striking together. His defense was kind of shaky. His offense was kind of one note and non-committal. And ever since he came out the Ultimate Fighter, he's constantly grown in both fight IQ, his striking, and his ability to transition from striking to grappling. It, it's grown exponentially. And not just that, but the way he fights his opponents has grown exponentially. It's not so... I'm depending on my athleticism and my wrestling pedigree. He actually has game plans. He's actually looking for counters for specific techniques. He's actually shutting down certain positions. He's actually putting guys in positions that they're not comfortable working out of. And a lot of the fights that fighters lose, it's not just because they don't have a good enough skill set, because you can't control your opponent's skill set. You can't control their athleticism. What you can control is being in shape, your preparation, and your initial read. And so far, Henry Cejudo's preparation his game plans and his initial reads are elite. Regardless of what you think about what he did against Johnson, nobody's ever pushed Johnson to that degree where Johnson couldn't have his way or couldn't find the finish or couldn't take over at any point. He was doing great, but he wasn't ever taking the fight over. He wasn't close to stopping Cejudo. He wasn't dominating position and threatening him at every spot. That just didn't happen. And that's because Cejudo's team put together a game plan and studied the tape and prepared him in a manner that allowed him to shut down one of the most technical one of the most experienced and one of the most physically gifted fighters in the world. And I think that's what separates 
him from Mariah, from Marlon. Marlon's a good Marlon's good, but I haven't seen enough of Marlon in tough spots. To me, he shows a good skill set, but when he can't get you out of there, he's not particularly creative. He kind of does the same things. And when he's been put in bad spots, which is very rarely because he hasn't fought a guy with comparable athletic ability, I haven't really seen a whole lot of him. I haven't seen him be able to figure things out or take things to a different position or do things that I haven't seen him go to a plan B and win or go to a plan B and force the fight back to his plan A and win. The one fight he had to work for was against the Sun Tao, and he could never figure him out. The timing was off. The spacing was off. The distance was off. He couldn't put the shots together he wanted to. He couldn't get away from shots the way he wanted to. He couldn't get to the fight to the ground. He couldn't maintain the fight at the range he wanted. That's all game planning. That's all IQ. And that that's a concern for me. If his athleticism isn't the determining factor, I don't think anybody could say this fight isn't in Henry Cejudo's favor. I think he's got the higher IQ. I think he's shown more growth in the past four years. And I think he's come up with better game plans against better, more well-rounded, more experienced fighters. As far as on paper, it's hard to it's hard to go against Cejudo. Marais has got the better striking and the better athleticism. But when's the last time he's been tested? When's the last time he's had to fight a hard three or five rounds? We have no idea what's going to happen when he's really pressed because it hasn't um, happened yet. Well, that's not true because he had to fight against the Sun style, which was um, the first one, which was definitely that was, men- that was the mental push. He wasn't really being pushed physically. A Sun style just slowed the pace down and controlled distance. And Marlon had no idea how to con- how to close the distance or how to put how how to put a Sun style in spots where he could exploit that long stance and that in and out movement. He just couldn't figure it out. It wasn't that he was punished or he had to really work hard. He just couldn't figure out. He couldn't figure it out. By the time he figured it out, the fight was over. That and. That and, and the, I would say that in the um, John Dodson fight, he was definitely pushed in, in that fight as well too because he he barely eked out that victory there. So I I, w- I would disagree that he hasn't been pushed in any major fights yet. I guess I could see the Dodson fight, but Dodson fights so dumb. Dodson is like one of the best athletes. If he had like twenty five percent cage IQ, he'd be a world champion. He he just isn't. It, I just don't see that he's been forced to have to really defend against guys or really face a guy who's really coming after him. A Sun Tao's not that kind of guy, and Dodson just loads up for single shots. Dodson doesn't ever put combinations together. Dodson doesn't really ever really pressure someone. He's the toughest fight to have because he's so explosive and dangerous, but he's the easiest fight because he's so predictable, and he works at such a low volume. He works at such a low pace. It, it kind of neutralizes any gift he has. I think Marlon's perfectly capable of knocking Cejudo out. He's explosive. He's dynamic. He can find a submission. He could get on top of him and ground and pound him. But I don't think that he has the overall wherewithal nor the patience if the fight goes, gets slowed down, if the fight isn't fought at a certain pace, if the fight isn't fought at a certain range. I don't have faith in his ability to make the necessary adjustments to take over a fight if he starts losing. Because even in the fights where he's been pushed, air quotes, he hasn't been losing those fights. And it's different when you're, you've lost a round or you've lost two rounds in a row. Now you got to win three straight or you got to win at least two and draw on the third. He hasn't been in those spots. He's always been playing with the lead and playing with the lead is easy. Playing when you're it's even or playing when you're behind is when the, the IQ and the heart comes into play. And he hasn't. And the one time he was behind, he lost. The rest of the time, he's at worst, he's been even. He's been neutral. So I don't know what happens if he's in a bad spot taking punishment if he's getting taken down left and right, if he's up against the cage getting punished, I don't know what he's going to do. I've never seen it. He didn't have that test in the World Series of Fighting, and he really hasn't had it in the UFC either. Okay, I'm not going to... Um, who do you think Who do you think takes it, and, and how? 
Um, I think Cejudo can finish him. He he could probably pull away Lynn's decision. I'd probably say he's win a decision. I think he can finish. The biggest danger for Cejudo is going to be one, rounds one through three because that's when Marais is going to be freshest and most explosive. That's going to be before Cejudo can get his hands on him and try to wear him down and tire him down with takedown defenses or forcing him against in wrestling or, or clinch exchanges against the fence or things of that nature. So early on, uh, his Marlins offense is like on a hair trigger. His counters on a hair trigger. I don't think they're particularly layered, but they're super sharp and they're super fast. And at that stage, Cejudo, he's improved his defense, but he still has some issues getting caught against guys. And he hasn't really fought a guy who's got the balance striking skill set that Marise has. Um, Pettis would be the closest thing to it, and Pettis isn't as dynamic as Marlon is. But I feel if he can navigate that distance, which I feel he can, he's going to get his hands on him. He's going to outposition him. He's going to wear him down a little bit through the grappling exchanges, and then he's going to kind of pick it up on the feet and just alternate between fighting him on the feet and taking him down, and he's going to win a decision and probably pull away late. But I think there's a good chance he could stop him. Who You think who stops who? I, I, think, I think Cejudo can stop him. And um, I, I most likely I think he wins the decision, but that first first round to about midway through the third round, uh, that's going to be dangerous for Henry. I, I hope he's done his research. I hope he's paid attention to every single detail because Marais is that quick and that that explosive, and that that can make a difference. I, I'm just hoping. I'm assuming that Henry moving up from weight, he's used to speed, and Marais' speed won't be any, anything special to him because he's been competing against world class fighters who are 10 pounds lighter than than Marlon. So I'm assuming he can handle the speed and the explosiveness. The question is, can he handle the power? But like I said before, I feel his team is going to come up with a good enough plan where he's going to be able to manage the distance, time his entries, work Marlon out over the inside, and at least be able to hold his zone, striking at range, and probably pull away late to win a decision. Interesting thought there. Do you think that who will be the stronger man? Will it be Marlon, or do you think it'll be Henry? Because remember, Henry actually started out at 135. Yeah, that not just that, but the fact that Henry is a world-class wrestler, and you've wrestled before. Even guys who aren't who aren't considered physically strong wrestlers to non-wrestlers are incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. And he's 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 a gold medalist. I mean, that means as far as technique and conditioning and physical strength, there's very few guys in the UFC who can match him in those regards. So I would assume that Henry's going to be able to not just manhandle him, maybe match match Marlon's strength, but also be able to maintain his strength later on in the fight. Because we, we haven't really seen Henry get real tired. He's been in some high-paced, long-drawn-out fights. He's maintained that, that condition and that cardio, which means his strength is going to maintain earlier. So he might not be as strong early on, but I don't think there'll be a dip in his strength. And I think in Mar- as far as Marlon, if he gets into grappling exchanges, you'll see a dip. You'll see points where he could shuck Henry off early, and later on Henry's gonna bulldog him to the ground. Interesting thoughts there, man. Let's talk about this Coleman event too, as well. Um, I don't know what to make of this fight, dude. I really don't. You have Jessica I, who has not had the greatest um, UFC run. Let me see what her UFC tenure is. She's had a great run as a flyweight. I'll tell you that much. I mean, she's won what two? <laughs> but it's kind of like. She's won three, and Marino. it's it's. Uh, I mean, the that's what she's been. The most unimpressive three fight win streak you will ever see in your life. 
that's where she's been undefeated her whole career. I mean, she's lost she lost four straight before that, five of, of her last six. And that Leslie Smith fight, I don't think they should have stopped it because Leslie was winning the fight and her ear exploded. So yeah. what do you think about this here, man? Um, are we gonna is first question, if Jessica I wins, is this the biggest upset in UFC history? Uh, no, I can't give it the biggest upset. The reason I can't give it the biggest upset is because of Valentina. Valentina, as good as she is, Valentina essentially doesn't do anything different in any of her fights. If you've seen one Valentina Shenchenko fight, you've essentially seen them all. The only fight that looks any different was the fight against uh, Juliana Pena when she submitted her. And that's because Juliana Pena is a, te- is, is a terrible technical fighter. The only thing that she beats up is the English language when she speaks because she speaks very ridiculously. But outside of that, all her fights are controlling distance, landing clean counters at a low volume, getting a trip or a sweep or a throw, working some ground and pound, getting back to the feet and outworking someone. She really, and then their fight against Prachuera, she where she just took her down and just beat her the hell up. Her fights are all very similar. And she does the same thing in every fight. I have seen no variation from her. And everybody keeps telling me, well, she can do this and she can do it all. That's not true because she, if she had different layers to her fighting skills or different variations, then when she needed them, she could have pulled them out and she would have beat Amanda Nunes in one of these fights. And maybe she'd be the Bantamweight champion instead of the Flyweight champion. So even though Jessica I isn't great in any one realm, the fact of the matter is Valentina Shevchenko might be the easiest world-class fighter to prepare for because she doesn't do anything different. She fights at the same pace, in the same range, throwing the same sequence of shots, and works in the same spots routinely. You see the Holly Foam fight, you see the Sarah Kaufman fight, you see every fight, it's, it's shades of the same fight. And that makes her easy to prepare for. The problem for Jessica is, is, as I noted before, she can do a lot. She can grapple, she can wrestle, she can box, strike. But she's not particularly great at either one of them. She's not a lockdown wrestler. She can't just blow through and get takedowns on anybody because she couldn't get one on Chukagan. She couldn't get one on Chukagan. She's had a hard time doing it with other people. And the biggest thing that's going to cause her a problem is she doesn't have any faith in her striking anymore. Remember when Jessica I came in? <clears throat> she was supposed to be a striker with her fast feet and her fast hands. Uh, Misha Tate, I guess, just beat her up so badly. Now, she doesn't have confidence in her striking. She almost constantly initiates grappling and wrestling exchanges. And while she's good and effective in them, she's not world-class and she's not dominant. And against some of these flyweights who are a little bit smaller than her, she can get away with that because she's got enough size, enough physical strength, enough athleticism. But Valentina fought at Bantamweight too, and she fought the biggest, strongest, most explosive Bantamweight in the world who took her down and she found a way to get up, who put her up against the cage and she found a way to get off. She's done that. So as much as Jessica I is looking to exploit Valentina's grappling, the fact of the matter is nobody's really dominated Valentina on the ground, and she's faced a lot of seasoned, experienced fighters who are capable of dominating people on the ground. It just hasn't happened. And I don't know that Jessica I has the skill, nor does she have the athletic ability to just dominate, to crush her in any one position. I know she can't do it on the feet. If Misha Tate outclasses you on the feet, you are no longer able to say you're a striker. You are not beating anybody world-class on the feet. And she hasn't looked great on the feet since. I guess she can grapple her. But once again, who is she dominated grappling? Anybody. She hasn't looked spectacular. She can do it. <clears throat> but it's not a decisive advantage. And the same thing with her wrestling. So while Valentina is super predictable, 
I don't know where the area is that I know Jessica I can clearly and concisely dominate, where she is so much better than anybody else that Valentina has faced in any one area, especially in the case of wrestling and strike and grappling, where it seems that's where she wants to put the fight in. That, that That's where my confusion comes in with how she wins this fight. So, hmm, what do you, man, let me ask you a question, because I asked this previously. Yeah, I think you're not... I, I know Jessica. I know Jessica's team very well. Like I know a couple of her trainers. I talked to them before fights. You know, written articles. We've had discussions about some of her issues and her errors. They stick up for her. They're they're on her team, obviously, or they were on her team before she left. But it's not like I don't have any concept of what Jessica's about or the mistakes she makes or the issues she's been having. This isn't me just pulling stuff out of the air. This is like actual conversations. People have read articles and contacted me about what I wrote. We've had discussions about this. So I'm not just imagining this this is actual like factual context contextual discussions i'm having about her as a fighter sorry go ahead so i kind of i want to compare valentina shevchenko to demetrius johnson simply because their divisions and you're moving around a little bit so i can hear a lot of the background noise but i want to talk about comparing shevchenko to demetrius johnson because of where their divisions were when they became champion. Are we looking at Shevchenko in a way that she can become as dominant in women's fighting that Demetrius Johnson did, or is that too far of a leap? And is this division more or less developed than the men's flyweight division was when DJ was on top? I'd say it's kind of similar. I mean, some, the thing about it is you got girls coming down from bantamweight and moving up a straw weight. So they've been in the UFC and a lot of them have had world-class competition so they have at least an idea with the guys flyweights a lot of them were coming in and they they hadn't faced real world-class competition they went from fighting the 12th ranked fighter 11th ranked fighter 9th ninth ranked fighter all the way to the champion that's a big jump to make rock girls like roxanne Matafari, jessica i uh who else is in there um i can't even think of people uh andrea lee just different people in there they they face world-class competition so in a sense the girls are a little bit more seasoned and a lot of more experienced with superior athletes and superior technicians, at least as, as far as they're concerned, as far as their skill set goes. They're a little bit more comfortable with that than the guys were. But the one thing that is common is there isn't a lot of depth at this stage in the in the division. I mean, just guys put together three unimpressive wins because they don't have anybody else. She is getting a title fight. That's essentially why this happened. They don't have anybody else who's got any sort of name or cachet, who's done as well as Jessica I, and now she's getting ready to fight. One of the girls she beat is had to move up to Bantamweight because she can't make weight anymore. One girl got cut after Jessica I beat her, and then she beat Caitlin Chukagan, who's, who's, who's won two fights in the UFC in her weight division, but none of them were particularly dominant or particularly impressive. So it, it's similar in the fact that there's not a much depth, and it's going to take time to fill out the division, and for the division to get some seasoning for there to be the raise in talent and the raise in skill necessary to come up with competitive fights. It might take a couple of years. It might take two or three years before you actually see the transition between where Valentina is facing legitimate threats. But the one thing that works in their favor is Valentina is A, not often a finisher, and B, she fights the same way. She's not an aggressive fighter. So she's going to give people opportunities because she's not going out to close the show. So in the same instance, while she'll dominate, you won't see a lot of spectacular finishes, or you, in general, you shouldn't see them based on her historical performances. 
So in that case, it looks a lot like Demetrius Johnson back when he was winning boring decisions over people. Uh, he didn't win that many decisions, though. But um, I don't think he won many decisions at all. He actually had a, more finishes than he had decisions. Yeah, it started picking up later, but when he beat um, who did he beat when he was in the tournament, he beat Ian McCall, and that was on a decision. He beat Joseph Benavides on the decision for his title. Then he came back and knocked him out. He fought Dodson, and then he he beat him. I think decision twice in a row. One was more dominant than the other. You know, it's it wasn't so much that I he was always winning. Like three of those fights weren't boring at all. I mean, the Benavides fight where he won the title was a back and forth fight. The Ian McCall fight, the second one was more dominant. The The first one ended in a draw. That was very exciting. And then the John Dawson fight was exciting, at least for the first two rounds, where he was getting dropped up the right. Yeah, I, I I personally found them exciting. I personally find them pleasing technically, but the, cat, the, the MMA fan who makes the most money is the one who just wants to see people just throwing hammers. And um, that's not what you got with Demetrius Johnson. There was an approach, there was a neutralization, then there was a slow takeover, then there was either finish or decision win. The only one that you could probably say was quote unquote boring would be the Ali Bagalatino fight from UFC 174. That went five rounds and was like, you know, not exciting to watch. But then he would go on to the, the finish one, two, three, four, five, five of the next six guys he faced. I personally don't think any of them were boring. I'm just going by the nature of most fans who watch his fights, whether it was finishes or decisions, people didn't get the, they weren't enamored by it because it didn't finish in the manner that they wanted to see people want to see back and forth slugging they don't want to see the process they don't want to see that kind of dominance they want to see a certain savagery and a certain decisiveness in the finishes that's just what they want to see you know unless they unless they like you in which case then they'll excuse fights that aren't really exciting otherwise and they didn't like Demetrius Johnson he got the rep of being boring and Dana White would stick up for him. But when push came to shove, Dana turned on Demetrius Johnson too. So I'm, while I didn't find his stuff boring and I thought he was a great champion, a lot of people did not because he did not give them the show that they wanted to get. And he was never going to give them that show. And Valentina's the same way. She's not putting on a show for you. She's coming in to win. She wants the counter fight. She wants clean counters. She wants clean takedowns. She wants to control the pace. She wants to limit the engagements. And she wants to control the engagement. It's all technical, strategical, mental, and physical dominance. If it's exciting while she's beating the hell out of you, cool. But she doesn't want to be engaged in the war. She doesn't want to be engaged in a high-paced fight. She just wants to win. And in that case, she's very much like Demetrius Johnson. The only difference is Demetrius Johnson was skilled in every single area, not just initially, not in a shallow, platonic manner, but he had a lot of depth and width to his skill set. Valentina doesn't have as much width and she doesn't have as much depth of skill. Luckily for her, all the girls in her division also do not have as much depth or width, and they don't have the physicality or the size to force her into fights that she doesn't want to be in or to, to power through her technical advantages. I know for sure Jessica I doesn't. We know she doesn't have the power or the explosiveness or the size to just walk through what Valentina's doing to her. She's not strong enough, physically tough enough to just throw, throw her down and dominate position. It Everything's going to be at least at the worst, equal, but I think Valentina is actually the stronger fighter and the better athlete. So once again, we we have a champion who is a head and a head and a half above the rest of the the contenders, and that doesn't make for exciting fights, especially when the fighter isn't going to go just to blow someone out, but to technically, mentally, and strategically break them down and dominate them. It's exciting to you and me, but we get the sport. But for people who just want to see someone get blown out, 
that that doesn't do it for him. But as you mentioned, Valentina is a certain look, a certain image, and that will get her a pass when she's not as dominant or as appealing in, in fights that aren't as appealing as other fights. Uh, who do you think takes it and how? I've really been tough on this fight just because the way Valentina fights, I feel like it's a tightrope back in a similar way that Tyrone Woodley because she just does enough where there's a question of what her winning or her losing. The fights against, even the fights she won were like split decisions. And I feel like she could do that again and be in very well be in a situation where she could be in a split decision win, not because she couldn't outclass I or she couldn't take her down or she couldn't dominate her, but because the manner and the pace and the volume she throws in the fights allows fights to be closer than they be closer than they actually are and, and actually keeps people in a position where they can win. But I'm going to pick Valentina because, as I said, I think she's a bigger hitter. She's got the better chin. I think she's physically stronger. I think she's a better athlete, and um, she's competed. She's competed better at bantamweight. And if she fought Joanna, Joanna's not a real flyweight, but Joanna is better than anybody that Jessica Eyes beat a flyweight as well. So I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna say that Valentina's experience, her counter striking, and her ability to transition off a of, transition to striking off a of takedown defense and transition into takedowns off of her strikes is gonna be the determining factor. I think later in the fight. Jessica, I'll get a little bit closer, but I, I, I expect Valentina to win a pretty clean decision. A stoppage could be there if Jessica I panics, but um, Valentina doesn't hunt for hunt for finishes. She kind of like wants to win clean, surgical decision wins, and I think that's what she does. All right, all right, I'll take that there. The next fight, man, this is one I'm probably most excited for: Tony Ferguson and Donald. Father Cerrone, uh, what, what, what are you calling him, uh, Daddy Donald or whatever the hell people are calling him now, Dad by Donald. He, they are fighting for 155 pounds, three-round fight. This is clearly a fight to clean up the top of that division. What do you see happening here? Who are you, um, who are you picking and just how big of a fight and how, big is, how important is this for the lightweight division? I have a couple of things. Just before we get into this, um, and I don't remember if Jeremy Stevens' fight when he fought after he had the whole depression thing, if they allowed him to fight. I'm not sure that fight went through or not. But I remember Jeremy Stevens was scheduled to fight, and he was talking about he was thinking about killing himself. He was so depressed after the loss to Jose Aldo. And then I'm not judging Tony, but this is a professional sport now. So if this was an NBA player, NFL player, we'd be discussing this. So I have to discuss it with Tony Ferguson. Should he really be fighting after having the issues he was having? I mean – I mean, they, sometimes football players and basketball players get suspended from games for stuff like this, and here he is in a contact combat sport. I'm not saying he should be, but is anybody concerned with how they came to the assessment that he's okay to fight and that he's? Oh, everybody's asking that, that question. That's a huge question because it he his wife basically called put a guy had a restraining order put on him. Um, not because he was being violent towards him, but out of fear because he was having what seemed to be like a almost like a mental breakdown. So yeah, you do have to ask the question, what battery of tests did he pass to be cleared for this fight? Because we don't know. We probably won't know the answer to those to that question, but that is a very valid question to be asking at this point in time. But I don't think people are, are asking it. Yeah, I mean, that. I, I mean, like I said, it, he might be all fine and everything, but isn't this the kind of thing, like, let's say he just, let's just say he goes off the rails months from now, or 
the night after or the week after, the first thing everybody's going to ask is, how the hell did you have this guy fighting? Like, how did you just let this pass? And, and how the UFC never ha- has to answer any of these questions, I will never know. Every other sport has to do sports that make more money, that have more cachet, that have more international impact, have to answer these questions. But somehow the UFC gets around having their fighters answer it and they get around having their commissioner answer it. It, it makes no sense to me. I don't, I don't understand how they dodge these bullets, but that, that's neither here nor there. Um, as far as the fight, this is the biggest question I have about the fight. Tony Ferguson can box a little bit. He can wrestle. He can grapple. He can do a lot of things. But when to- there's two ways to fight people. You And Michael Irvin told me, he didn't tell me this, but I heard him say this, and it's something that always stuck with me. He goes, you attack a man's weakness to beat him, or you attack his strength if you want to break him. Michael Irvin would always attack defensive players' strengths so he could break their will and break, the- break their spirit, break their will. Because once you do that, it's over. Tony Ferguson is a fighter who exclusively tries tries you in your area of strength to break your will. He does it in every single fight. He could do he could go to the opposite direction and do what it takes to just beat you without exposing himself to threats and risks, but he insists. And I don't mean the guys are just good enough to put him in these positions. He insists on putting himself in the line of fire and risk losing a fight to prove a point. He did it against Lando Venata. Lando Venata was beating his ass. He was dropping him. He was stumbling like a drunk. I, I mean, if this was a fight on the street, I would have called the police and had the guy locked up in, in jail for two years for assault and battery. But once he decided he was going to use his jab, the fight was easy. Why didn't he use his jab in the beginning? He chose not to. Against Anthony Pettis, he could have fought a better fight. He could have fought at long range and pressured him with a jab, long right hands, kicks to the leg and kicks to the body. What do he do? Get right in his face, come right at him. And what happened? He's beating up Anthony, beating up Anthony, beating up Anthony. But we all know at one point or another, Anthony's going to land a big shot. That's just what he does against everybody. What happens? Anthony lands a big shot. Tony tumbles to the ground, and Anthony's winning the round and putting something on him. When he fought RDA, he beat RDA, but he, he fought RDA in the, in the range at the pace that RDA wanted to fight in. Yeah, he won it, but he could have fought the fight in a better way. He could have wrestled him. He could have used a long-range weapon set up for wrestling and worn him down in wrestling exchanges and scrambles and then took over. Nope, I'm going to trade with him. And that's what he always does. So the question is, is he going to get into a range kickboxing fight with Donald Cerrone? Most likely he is. And if he does, he's going to give Donald Cerrone enough time to acclimate himself to the pace, acclimate himself to the context, contact, find his timing, find his spacing, and start taking over. He has the, he's a, Tony's more durable. They're, they're kind of mirror images of each other to a degree. They can wrestle, they can grapple, they can strike a little bit. But the thing about it is Tony's better pace. He's more durable. He's a lot more fresher and he's a lot more creative in the stuff he does. But he throws all that out the window to prove that he can fight you on your grounds and beat you. And when he does that, he's going to give Donald Cerrone an opportunity to win the fight. Um, Donald's look great, but Donald's been fighting very limited guys. Um, Platinum, Mike Perry, he's big, strong, physical. He doesn't have high IQ. He's not a great grappler. He's not a great wrestler. He, he took a dumb approach to fight. He got finished. Um, Alexander Hernandez, his, his corner did not prepare him for that fight, and he did not have the skills or the seasoning to compete. He lost. I predicted that. Iaquinta, that was the easiest fight in the world to call. Iaquinta doesn't have the athleticism or the size or the skills to beat Donald Cerrone. Now Donald's facing a guy who can beat him, and we're going to find out what happens. I can't go against Tony Ferguson. I just can't in this stage. The only question is, is he mentally there? If he's mentally there, he should be able to set a pace for Donald Cerrone, transition through ranges, 
outwork him, and then finish him somewhere in between, what, middle of second round to maybe the third round? That's what he should be able to do. But Tony Ferguson fights like an idiot almost all the time, which means he's guaranteed to try and kickbox Donald Cerrone. He's going to put himself in the line of fire and put, put himself at risk to be submitted or knocked out by Donald, um, to be quite honest. So I'm going to assume that Tony's going to make the mistake he always makes, and I'm going to assume that against a veteran who's on a streak and has faced every type of style and every caliber of opponent, that Donald Cerrone is going to take advantage of that, that take advantage of that mistake, and he's going to win the fight. Wow, that's some, I think you might be one of the few people that are picking Cerrone to get the win this weekend. Let's talk about what the win means for both men, because I think we are looking at the next um, lightweight contender in this fight here, uh, because the fight between um, uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov and Dustin Poirier has been set for September, I believe, the 23rd in Abu Dhabi. So now we have this fight here, and I think that the winner of this fight is going to be the number one contender. Who do you see um, taking that? And looking at this fight here, is the lightweight title fight the next fight for both men uh, come Saturday evening? Um, first of all, Tony, I don't even know why he's doing this. Personally, he got screwed. He won the interim title and then got stripped of it for some reason. I have no idea why that happened. He should have already had... He should still have an interim title. He, he should have already had a title fight with Khabib by now. This is a travesty that he, he's gotten screwed. So that's first off. I have to acknowledge that man was screwed. Um, I mean, whoever wins it is probably going to give the next title fight. That, that's pretty much all that needs to be said about it. If it's Cerrone, it'll be a very big money fight. If it's Tony Ferguson, it'll be a fight that casual fans care about, but it won't be a fight that that really gets ratings or really gets numbers. It's not the most easily sellable fight to the casuals. Um, that's all that needs to be said about the fight. Whoever wins this is going to get the next title fight. If Donald beats Tony, Tony's been on a win streak for like, what, two or three years, maybe four years. He's beaten everybody he's faced, and he's done it, he's done it impressively. And if, and if Tony beats Donald, even though Donald hasn't been in the division as much and he's been kind of up and down, the fact is he's on a win streak now, and he's one of the biggest names still in mixed martial arts. Mixed martial arts. So beating him gives you a little bit of the rub, as they call him, pro wrestling, and that'll give him enough to justify his title fight and to maybe make it into more of a bigger event than it would be otherwise. But you know, there's nobody else to fight. Gaethje needs at least one more win. Conor McGregor hasn't fought in how long? Nick D, Nate Diaz. Nobody knows what's up with him. I mean, these are pretty much the only two guys who can compete for the for the title. And whoever wins this fight will be competing for it. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you there. Uh, I do see. I mean, I know we, we all know Connor's going to tweet something on Friday or Saturday after the fight's over. He's going to put out some little cute, cute, cute tweet, and everyone's going to be talking about that. But it's not going to mean anything just because I don't think that. I don't think that he's in a position right now to kind of demand one of these uh, big fights. Even Nate Diaz has kind of been. Throwing his throwing the cold shoulder on that fight as well. If I'm Connor, I want Cowboy to win because Cowboy wants that Connor fight. He knows what that fight means. That means money. Cowboy and Connor is to me Cowboy and Connor. Even though Cowboy's a good wrestler and good grappler, um, what Connor showed me against Khabib really impressed me. Cowboy is a favorable matchup for Connor McGregor. And if Cowboy beats Tony Ferguson and then Connor beats Cowboy, he just he just got his shortcut to a rematch with Poirier or Khabib just like that with only winning one fight. 
So he's hoping the Cowboy wins that fight because not only is it a big money fight for him, the UFC will have to pay him for because I guarantee you all the casuals, especially if, if Cowboy wins this fight, everybody will turn out to see the Cowboy, Cowboy who's earned a title match risk his title fight to fight Conor McGregor. That'll that'll outdo any buy rate that could be that Nurmagomedov Poirier does. So if Cowboy wins this fight and he signs to fight Conor, we're just talking about probably one of the top three biggest fights in UFC history, and it's a favorable matchup for Conor. And if he if Cowboy beats Conor, oh my God, he's in a new stratosphere of fame, and he gets a title shot. If Conor beats Cowboy, he's put back in the stratosphere of fame because he beat the guy who beat the guy, and now he's got a rematch with Khabib for the biggest fight. In the- you there? You're breaking up a little bit. All right, I'm back. What was the last I said, if if Cowboy beats Connor, he goes into the new stratosphere of fame because he's already big, but he beats Connor, he becomes huge and he gets a title fight. If Connor beats Cowboy, he's reestablished himself because Cowboy would have beaten Tony. Connor beats Cowboy, and now he gets a shortcut right to the title fight and gets he gets put back as one of the best fighters in the world because of beating a guy who's a favorable matchup for him. So he's hoping the Cowboy wins this fight, in my opinion. Okay, uh, some good breakdown there, man. Um, let's move on to other fights that have caught my eye um, from tonight. Let's see, let's see, let's see. We have Angela. Uh, not we're not gonna get there yet. We got Tatiana Suarez and and Nina Ansaroff. Um, I w- I wish this fight was on the main card because I th- we're looking at a at a title contender coming out of this fight here. Tatiana Suarez, you know, we just kind of talked about whether Shevchenko could be as dominant as a champion as uh, Demetrius Johnson was, I think Suarez could be. And I think she's someone that a lot of women in that division need to fear because as she continues to put these tools together, no one's going to be able to stop her from deciding when this fight hits the floor or not. So this is a big fight to watch. And I, and I have Suarez coming out as, as the victor and being the number one contender after uh, we see what goes down between Shevchenko and Jessica I. Uh, I'd probably have to agree with you. My biggest concern with Suarez is she's stiff on the feet. Carla Sparza had moments where she could have exploited her on the feet. I know everybody keeps telling me, well, she would have got the takedown. She would have got the takedown. Maybe, maybe not. Suarez striking is not super crisp offensively. It's not super sharp defensively. And if you're a smart enough striker who can feint and, and really follow through with power, you can catch her clean. We don't know how she, we don't know. We don't know if she can catch. We've seen her pitch. We don't know if she can catch. We don't know that if somebody fakes that jab and comes over the right hand. We don't know that it just doesn't put her out. We don't know if we, if you fake high and she shoots and you fall through with that knee. We don't know that that puts her out. And even though she's never been knocked out or really rocked, the fact that we don't know that she can take punishment is going to embolden her her opponents because they don't know what she can take. So you have that puncher's chance. Um, I don't think Ansaroff's a good enough grappler. I don't think Ansaroff's off her back. I don't know that she's a good enough wrestler. I will assume that she's going to have a good game plan because she comes from ATT and they come up with great game plans. I'm assuming she can handle athleticism and size because her um, significant other is a world champion and I'm sure she's been working with her. But I think Suarez's chain wrestling and her pacing is going to be the difference. If Suarez can defend, if Ansaroff can control the range a little bit with feints and straight line attacks, I think she has a moment early in the fight if she can hurt Suarez and make her a little bit hesitant. Or do some damage on the team. It should be a good. Should be a what? 
All right, Swan, you need to get somewhere where your connection is a little bit better. Um, but I am looking at Suarez as being like a top, top challenger for the, the Strawberry Division. I'm looking at her to win and basically um, control that, that group going forward. But we're going to see because that swap is going to be a very tough challenge. For, tough, tough, excuse me, again, I can't talk today. Tough challenge for her come uh, Saturday. So, uh, Shawan, who are you picking between these two women? Uh, as a, I, I think I'm going to go with Suarez. Um, I think her chain wrestling and her pacing is going to be a little bit too much. I'm, I'm very concerned with her ability to take punishment, though. Very concerned. Okay, I, no problem. Let's uh, let's talk about Jimmy Rivera, and I think Peter Yan is the his opponent's first name. Let me look. Uh, is it, yeah, Peter Yan. This is a bantamweight fight here. I think the purpose of this fight was to serve as a potential stand-in, this and the Aljamain Sterling-Pedro Munoz fight. Uh, do you think a, a contender comes out of this fight or out of Aljamain Sterling-Pedro Munoz? Um, Munoz and Sterling, um, even if Rivera wins this fight, he's had such crushing losses. He's going to need at least two or three more fights to be even considered a, a legit contender again. Because when he's lost, he's lost badly. And he's lost to all, all the guys who are, who, are, who, are, who are fighting right now, who are ahead of him. He's lost to them. So he's not going to get a rematch in them. So he's going to have to beat other guys to work his way up to rematches. So if Jan wins, you have a contender. If Rivera wins, you have a guy trying to rehab his image. It's really this that simple. All right. All right. That's a quick breakdown there. Let's see. What else do we have on this card that stands out? Uh, let, let me know, man. What are you thinking? What else stands out on this card for you on Saturday? I'm really curious about the the Sterling fight with, with uh, Pedro Munoz. Just because... Sterling seems to have gotten his boxing together. I just have concerns with Sterling because I really don't think – I think he's a strong guy, athletic guy, good grappler, good wrestler, but I've seen him get physically bullied by guys. But he hasn't, fa he hasn't been facing guys who have got grappling chops well enough that they can take that risk to assert the, their physical dominance. And I'm thinking Pedro is a good enough finisher and a good enough counter grappler that he can take that chance. He can initiate ground attacks. He can hold position. He can stay in certain positions long enough because he's going to have the confidence that he can counter or attack or break through or break through Aljamain's defenses. So I think that's really an interesting fight to see how Aljamain's grappling holds up against a comparable grappler. The one other time he faced a really good grappler was against Carol. Breaking up a little bit there, sir. I think the last time he faced a really good grappler is when he faced Brian Caraway, and he kind of got outworked in that fight. He kind of got outworked and in in, in bullied a little bit in that fight, and he lost it. And Munoz is a better striker. He's more physically durable, and he's a comparable grappler, if not a better grappler and finisher than Caraway. So it's very likely that he could get position and control it, or he could get Aljamain out of position and finish him. So I'm very interested to see how Aljamain performs when he doesn't have a clear grappling advantage. In the transitions, he has an advantage, but it's straight up and down. I don't know that he's a better grappler. Yeah, I, I, I am interested in the way that people often talk about Aljamain Sterling's grappling. He's been talking a lot of uh, trash lately, especially towards uh, Wagner Rocha on, on the competitive grappling scene. So I'm interested in seeing what kind of grappler he really is, if he's that guy that he kind of puts himself out there to be, because I definitely have some questions about that. Do you think, I mean, based on your experience, what you know about grappling, do you think his grappling is really that next level? It seems creative and athletic to me, but it doesn't seem that. I wouldn't say it's next level. I would say that he's definitely a uh, good. He's definitely good. 
knows what's where and kind of he knows how to. I haven't seen him necessarily in, a, in grappling wise. Um, Brian Caraway kind of gave him a time, but I think he knows his positions very well. But to to be saying some of the things that he's saying. He's kind of talking about himself as like a someone that's like on an IDCC or excuse me, ADCC level. I have questions about that, but you know he is going to go out there and I think he's going to get some some things done. So let's see what he looks like on on Saturday. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I'm concerned with his ability to take punishment too, because if he's afraid to close the distance, his whole game gets thrown off. If he's put on the defensive, I think that's a loss for him. He has to control the pace and the place of the fight. And do you think he'll be able to do that on, on Saturday? Honestly, no. I don't. He might surprise me, but honestly, I don't think he's going to be able to. So what else do we got on this card? We've got four women's fights, and I know we try to make sure that the women get just as much coverage on our show as the men do. Is there anything else that stands out from what you I'm really concerned about your girl, Angela Hill, because um, I keep saying this. She should be a star. She just can't win the big fight. And once again, I don't think she's going to win this fight. Um, her, she fight, To me, she fights the wrong style. She tries to fight like Dominic Cruz, and that only works when you have that wrestling advantage, and she doesn't have it. So I, I think she's going to lose the decision, possibly get stopped in this fight. Um, I just think she's in the wrong weight class. I don't think she hits hard enough, and I don't think she takes a good enough shot to be fighting in this weight class, nor is her defense good enough. She's good enough to compete in these fights. She's good enough to to do work in these fights, but against a certain caliber of opponent, she always seems to lose, and I think this fight was put here because she's a name with an exciting style, and they're hoping her opponent wins this fight and moves to the next stage in her career. Well, she's, she's taking this fight on late notice. Um, I, I can't remember who... Uh, her opponent was originally scheduled to face, but she's definitely taking this was fight on Herrick? late notice. Was it Fleece Herrick who got hurt, right? Yes, I believe so. Yes, correct. She, but she, but uh, Angela Hill is definitely stepping in on late notice. And I, I get it. I commend her for it. I, I'm a fan of hers. And I really wish she could just put the right wins together because she has everything it takes to be a transcendent star. She just can't put wins together and she can't win the right fight. And I don't think she wins this Saturday night either. Well, I mean, hey, that's where we kind of We've, we've consistently talked about her over the last few years. So, like, let's let everybody know what you're working on and where they can. Um, you can find me on Black Jordan Green at Twitter, as always. I'm working on some articles about camps, strategies, and I got a couple long form articles I've been working on, but uh, I haven't gotten a, a name to them yet. But I'm, I'm working on them for you guys. Man, we're going to go ahead and today's show as always I, I appreciate your time i appreciate your content and everybody you can find us next week we'll be back um to talk more mma probably recapping what goes down on ufc 238 and everyone have a great weekend and, and be safe on um be safe this friday and saturday all right you take it easy sir um, have a great night